This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello and welcome to Alexandra Marshall Live. While we were all sipping champagne and enjoying the dual victory of last weekend's referendum and New Zealand's banishment of the socialist Ardern era, it has been forgotten that there was a third victory. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese had two referenda on his agenda. If The Voice had succeeded, he would have thrown the nation straight back into the fires of division and once again attempted to transform Australia into a republic so that he and his Labor mates could finally exact revenge for the ghost of Whitlam and ensure their radical left-wing campaign could continue without the nuisance of constitutional protection. Had this happened, good old Kevin Rudd would have been on the first plane back to Oz to battle it out with that red bandana bloke and the man in the mansion, Malcolm, for the lofty position of president. Imagine it if you could, our democracy flapping about on the twin wings of Albo and Peter Fitzsimmons. Australia would be flown straight into the nearest wind turbine and splattered all over the bush. Now, politicians have always wanted to be kings, but as Albanese learned the hard way on Saturday, Politics is a fickle business. Friday's hero is Saturday's laughing stock. Political leaders routinely find themselves betrayed, killed off by their party room, or used as sacrificial goats when it all goes horribly wrong for particular policies. You know that goat tied to the pole in Jurassic Park? That's Albanese right now. Now these days, the political class are little more than revolving doors of cardboard cutouts with a hashtag and a wad of cash. The young are left to learn the nation's need stability beyond the ruthless electoral cycle of bickering parliaments. Now the people need a guardian that isn't shaking hands beneath the table. For now, at least, Australia is safe. Labor will be licking its wounds in the corner and trying to work out how to ignore the voice of Australia and keep its promises to shonky, corrupt and bulging bureaucracies. Despite Australia saying no, they'll still want their payday. The truth is that Conservatives didn't win the war on Saturday, they joined the battle. And joining us now to discuss the state of Australian politics is Jai Martinkovitz, my friend and spokesman for Young Australians for Constitutional Monarchy. Jai, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. It's good to be here. Look, you and I are both passionate about limiting the power of politicians. One way to do this is by upholding our constitutional monarchy in which politicians have a glass ceiling to limit how much damage they can cause in a single term. Labor can cry all they like about Whitlam, but the subsequent election showed that he deserved to have his ass thrown out. Have the events of the weekend saved Australia from a second referendum on the Republic? Yeah, I think that um, you're right. I think people are disillusioned with the choice, uh, I think, that they have between politicians. So it's the quality of the people who are there that I think are really what people have an issue with at the moment. So I think it's about sort of having a look there at the different ways that we can address that. Yes, well, I mean, we were promised that the Albanese government would bring about a second referendum. What do you think the chances are of him still doing that? Is Labor a bit gun-shy now that they've had their first idea shot down straight away? Yeah, there's no way that that's going to happen. I think the appetite for a second referendum on, say, the Republic issue, which is um, what was always held out as contingent, I think, on the success of the voice referendum, that's just not going to happen. There'll be no appetite for that within the, uh, the, the powers that be. Yeah, well, referendums are an interesting thing because very rarely in a single party state, which is what we've got now with Labor and Liberal copying notes, does the public actually get asked what it thinks? Because usually, I mean, the idea is you've got a Liberal system and then you've got a Labor system and they usually take different positions, but we've had parties taking the same position. Do you think it was a, an interesting and, and useful exercise to ask the public what they actually think about something? 
Yeah, I, I definitely think that's the case. So having a referendum is important because especially when you have change that's of a constitutional nature, you need to have obviously a referendum there because that's the mechanics by which you can change the constitution. On these broader issues, I think that we do elect politicians with a mandate to change uh, certain things they flag prior to an election. But the issue is they don't always bring these things to the election. So they make these decisions um, sort of often unilaterally uh, in between election terms. Um, and then we see, uh, obviously, that the public mood is against them, but there's no mechanics there by which um, we can actually hold them accountable for what they took as the platform to the election. So I think it's those measures, and I'm sure we'll come to some of these things um, in, in due course there, but sort of holding them accountable between elections that people want. Yes, well, I mean, you are obviously passionate about the constitutional monarchy and our systems of government. Tell us a little bit about yourself and how you ended up getting involved in the ACM. <laughs> Yeah, that's actually a, an interesting story. So um, at the time, um, I was dating my now wife, um, Teresa, and she was the secretary at ACM. And um, it was actually uh, on one occasion that Tony Abbott asked me that same question. And I told him, well, I was dating the, uh, the secretary, which always helped. And he said, oh, well, Jai sex is always a good motivation. <laughs> well, motivator, I think was the word that he used. So it was uh, really, I think, from that, that it Sort of initially stem with the involvement and interest um, but as a young person um, i hadn't been particularly interested in politics itself or any of those sort of issues in and around that so it was um, something that i think as you get sort of involved to some extent um, it becomes of interest and i think that's the problem as well is that young people don't have enough understanding of political issues. And if they actually looked at them, I think a lot would find it quite interesting. And there'll be different issues that are of interest to different people. But um, I think that it's um, important that people understand the system that they sort of live under, I guess, and participate within that democratic system. Uh, you're so, so right. Um, yeah, from there, it was um, sort of that was the initial issue that I guess took my interest. Um, and then, yeah, sort of broadening that uh, interest over time into other areas. Yeah, you're so right. I mean, the youth of today are far more likely to join a socialist party or or have some like paint themselves green and go and stick themselves to the nearest road. You don't hear people getting interested in the structures that keep us safe because safety. Let's face it, it's not as interesting or uh, as you know radical socialist politics, but it is probably better if you want to raise a family. Do so you think that we need to start getting back to uh, caring about and valuing safety and stability instead of this change style politics we've got going? on yeah look definitely i think the things that are of interest to most people are the things that affect their day-to-day -day life um, it's the issues that people are facing like cost of living increases at the moment the politicians who are sort of interested in these peripheral issues um, that just don't resonate with most people they're out of touch with what most people want to be hearing about and so we sort of see the extension of that is that people then disconnect so if we want to actually engage people in our democratic system, have them be more, um, I guess, um, informed and to then take action within that system, I think the issues that, that we need to be talking about are the ones that are relevant for people. So uh, when we start getting into these issues of climate change and things that, you know, whether they're occurring or not, um, our impact on them are, are minimal and people see those areas of debate and they sort of just disengage. Yeah, well, left-wing politics is quite predatory. It does a lot of legwork when it comes to finding what people are frightened about or worried about, and then it tries to sell them solutions, whereas conservative politics, everyone involved in conservative politics is busy. They've got jobs. They don't spend all their time trying to sign up the youth, and that is becoming a problem because the ideology of the youth has been changed underneath it, and we'll get to that in a minute. But I want to return to my favourite topic of Albanese because he deserves it right now. There was a danger that Albanese would create race power in Australia through a bureaucracy of appointed activists that would then dismantle the constitutional monarchy, giving Labor the opportunity to completely rewrite the power structures and erase our democratic protections. Now, if he got his second referendum up as well as his first one, this could have fundamentally and completely changed the landscape of Australian politics. It could have been a real disaster. Do you think we've escaped Labor's plan to rewrite Australian politics? 
look, I, I think we've dodged a bullet. There's no question. So we would have without doubt thrown the baby out with the bathwater. And especially if we had have gone down the road of a republic, because when you look at the detail of, um, I guess, what would have emerged from that, we would have essentially been rewriting the whole constitution. So what the exact model would have been that they would put to a referendum is a, is a matter for debate, but certainly it would be moving to some form of politicians' republic. And when you look at all of the history of our institutions and values that are captured in that current constitution that we have and that we've built um, not only on 200 you know, plus years of history in Australia, but also all of the evolution that led to that point um, that we sort of inherited through our British foundation, uh, we would be rewriting that from scratch. And you can be rest assured that every single, you know, interest group um, that wanted to have its two cents worth um, would have put it into whatever constitutional model we adopted going forward. And it would be an unrecognisable system and would lead to disastrous outcomes without doubt. Yes, well, this is interesting because Australians hadn't really thought much about their constitution for a while and the Republic question's a little bit more distant from a lot of Australians, but the idea of race in the constitution made a lot of people sit down and, and think about what they believe in their constitution and how much they value it. And I think they might think more carefully if a Republic were opposed to them after what they've just seen Labor try and do. But what is this obsession with the Republic? Because politicians always seem to be on the hunt for more power, but they haven't done a good job of demonstrating that they actually deserve it. I agree. Um, I think that when, when you say this obsession with it, I think it's the obsession from the political class. And I think it is driven by that element of power um, because there are checks and balances that exist in our current constitution on that power and it does limit their ability to do certain things. Uh, plus they sort of see the institutions as um, outdated for whatever reason. So the average person though, I don't think there's any appetite for change. I mean, if, if anything, they're probably uneducated on it and couldn't care less. Um, and those who, who do understand it, I'd say the vast majority would want to retain what we have. So I think it's um, really driven by a very select group. Um, and then in terms of the broader constitutional um, issues, that, for example, with the voice, I guess there would be probably um, those who are sort of on the fringe there who do want that change, as we saw it was certainly the minority of people. Um, what I think people do want is to have better outcomes for Aboriginal people. And I think everybody that you would ask would agree with that objective, but how we go about it, you don't want to be changing a fundamental document for our nation as most Australians voted. Yes, well, it's a bit worrying because not only have politicians failed to solve some of the most basic social and economic problems faced in this nation, during COVID, they took absolute power in many cases, particularly state premiers. And then with that power, they completely and utterly trashed the nation. They trashed citizen rights and they violated international human rights laws. Shouldn't the political class first prove they can handle power, that they deserve this power and that they understand what underpins our free democracies? Because at the very least, it'd be nice to see them, oh, I don't know, balance the budget first. <laughs> Well, there's no question. People don't have confidence in their ability to deliver. They've proved that time and time again. We've seen a lot of poor outcomes that have come out. And I think the other point here is that if you're going to have power, and obviously you have to have political power to some extent, you want that to be as close as possible to the people. And what we're seeing here, I think, is a bit of a power grab from Canberra as well with a centralised power. Um, as where I would like to see if you are going to have governments handling most things, that you would see that power closer to the people and that the state government would be handling a lot more than what it does today. Oh, yeah, nice. It'd be very funny to try and see uh, power being taken out of the claws of the premiers and given to the people. I don't, I don't think you're going to get very far on that one. But look, one of the many reasons that the monarchy has managed to bring peace and stability, not only to Australia, but also you know, to the UK and the Commonwealth nations, is that it treats its citizens as equal subjects. And, you know, the left like to mock the idea of being a subject, but that is different to being a political ideological group. You are seen as a member of a family, you are protected, but not in a coercive manner. It's a very particular thing that places like America don't actually have. Now, the Crown acts on behalf of the people, not political interests or identity groups, or even power-hungry collectives. Now, Albanese demonstrated the exact 
opposite instinct when he attempted to install race power into Australia. Mm. Now, do you think that they need to look down, uh, like sit down and have a discussion about why our constitutional monarchy works before they even think about a republic? Because I don't think the Labor Party and even some Liberals understand why the monarchy is so good at brokering peace. Well, one of the most important things with the royal family, I think, is the sense of service and duty that it proceeds from. So there's, I guess, two different uh, elements here. So you've got the political class, which is um, sort of campaigning for power, if that makes sense. And then you've got the service and duty that comes from the royal family, which they haven't sought that position. And that's probably one of the biggest advantages of a hereditary monarchy is that for better or worse, they're born into that system. So... Um, at the apex, you have the Crown. Now, I understand, obviously, that there's the Governor-General within Australia who sort of operates um, as the day-to-day -day function there, but that power stems from a hereditary position. So it's that service and duty that they proceed from, which you cannot replicate in a political role. So if you did have a president, um, how you would sort of appoint or, or, or um, elect that president is a matter for debate. But however you do it in one way or another, it will be a politicised position. You cannot replicate what the monarchy offers. Well, part of that is the age-old problem of how do you... Because you require power to control the nation because if the government has no power, it can't keep a nation safe or, or free. Mm. But also you can't give it too much power and you have to find a way to limit power or you end up with a tyranny. This has always been the great trouble of, right. of human civilization. And actually our system is new. People talk about monarchies as being old, but a constitutional monarchy is younger than a republic by several thousand years and it's a pretty good solution. Now, in the case of a republic, constitutional monarchy, if the king were to interfere and make a mistake, he could lose his position and not just his own, but that of his entire family. It's a huge mistake to make. But if the president makes a mistake, well, he just takes a paycheck and a golden handshake and walks off. It's not really the same kind of protection, is it? That's right. And it's also the power that can be exercised. So really, there is no power in the monarchy itself. The power is in the power that it denies to others. It's that check and balance. So even if you had someone who went rogue, essentially, um, they couldn't really become a tyrannical leader. Um, they they would um, sort of have uh, that, that sort of check and balance role, but, but not being able to exercise authority and, and power themselves. So I see them as two very, very different things. And if there were ever to be some form of republic, one of the things that would absolutely need to be addressed is how would you apply those same checks and balances? And it would be incumbent on the uh, people proposing that model to demonstrate how their proposed model is not only able to replicate it, but to do it better, I think, than the current system. And only then would Australians say, well, maybe we should have a look at this. But um, I think it would be very, very difficult to come up with a model like that. I actually don't think it's possible to replicate that because the loss of losing a monarchy's uh, family position is an extraordinary risk for making a mistake. Whereas I don't think you can put that risk onto an individual inside the structure of civilization that we have because, honestly, you, you can't take away their life because they make a mistake. There's nothing you can do that would replicate the loss of a, of a monarchy making a mistake. Therefore, there is no um, mechanism to make them think twice about their mistakes. I mean, look at the... Was it Sri Lanka where the president was literally running away on some carrier when the whole nation was collapsing in on itself? Like, that shows you the danger of having a republic when your president just rocks off on the nearest military vessel never to be seen or heard from again. But look, let's talk about a different kind of power. We live in a world where corporations are being encouraged by the political class and they've discovered that they can kill off market competition by embracing a series of anti-capitalist ideas, including but not limited to things like ESG. Now, have we, we've seen like banks eagerly getting into this thing as well and it's saturating our consumer markets. Is this a problem for power structures in a democracy when corporates are in bed with the government? Yeah, it is. It's, it's a form of crony capitalism more than anything, really. Um, and, and these big corporations that are often supported by government, often they receive taxpayers' funds as well. Um, their first and foremost duty is to their shareholders. Um, they should be acting in the interests of shareholders. And what we've seen there is particularly, say, with the recent example of The Voice, um, as we learned from the outcome of that referendum, 
the position that those companies were taking in that debate was completely at odds with what the general public, um, and you would assume to be representative of their shareholders, were thinking. So there's there's a mismatch here, and they are using these funds to try to support various what they believe to be fashionable political causes um, to earn some sort of you know brownie points, one of a better word, um, with with the politicians. So there's something that's broken in that system. Um, I don't believe that they should be taking positions that are political in nature when they're a public company. Now, if individuals uh, want to take positions, well, then that's their democratic right to do it. But to do it at a company level and using shareholders profits to try and support these political causes, in my opinion, that's very, very wrong. So how that's addressed, you know, that's a, a separate point, but um, it's definitely wrong in principle. I mean, I'm not saying it's Mussolini-style fascism, but it is feeling a little bit like it's leaning toward fascist-style political systems, and that is not a good thing, especially when you've got these uh, left-wing politics coming into play. It very quickly becomes a dangerous system to try and bring back from the edge. And look, we've got the banks, for instance. We've got less and less small businesses um, that are meaningful um, in that sense. So we're seeing that a lot of these bigger companies are trying to just take increased share, pushing out the small guy, and um, they they sort of over time become these dominant voices. So what I believe is that you should have a bigger small business sector, and I guess that's on consumers to try and avoid the convenience of these larger businesses uh, where possible and to try and support the small guy. But uh, when you do get these big powerhouse companies that have massive amounts of money to splash around, they do take these positions and and it's highly problematic. How dare you support free market capitalism? I mean, what a shocker. But look, you know, the big banks are one of the worst offenders, I'm going to uh, say. I mean, look at Nigel Farage, what happened to him? I mean, it's, I know we're not the UK, but our banks do the same thing. We had him debanked because he had politics that the banks didn't like. And, uh, you know, they weren't even sorry when they were called out. They were embarrassed. They knew that the public didn't like their decision and the politicians freaked out and thought, oh, gosh, we could be cancelled too if we're not careful. But there wasn't any demonstration, at least to me, that they have changed their mind, that they are going to walk back from this kind of politicisation in the economic market. Are we seeing a new bubble of power form here that is happening inside our democracy? Because not just the power of the Prime Minister, we've obviously got power, power bubbles happening elsewhere. Yeah, we do. And we see it as well with big tech um, and the censoring of, um, or effective censoring of uh, opinion. So what do you do to combat that? Because you should have freedom of communication. You should have freedom of certainly of political communication. And we're seeing that there's this sort of uh, idea of fact checking, but who determines what those facts are and what's correct? Um, so obviously, you know, I'm sure that this wouldn't be a surprise to you. I believe we should be putting all of those ideas out there into the marketplace of ideas and those ones that uh, sort of stand the test of public scrutiny are the ones that will rise to the top. But to try and take this um, to the extreme and say, okay, well, we're going to determine what's actually fact, um, that's a very subjective thing and very dangerous to do and it seems to be the direction they're trying to take it. Um, so if not from the political level, well, certainly there's no pushback on the tech firms that tend to be very left-leaning in their thinking um, and wanting only certain opinions to rise to the top. Um, so that impacts on all areas of public debate. Um, and I don't think that's what the average person wants. I think they've got the common sense and judgment to be able to sift through and find the truth um, in that haystack of ideas and find that needle. Well, I think Twitter deserves a little shout out here. Not not old Twitter, I mean new Twitter under Elon Musk, because he has uh, released a lot of the documents and files from government communication with the old membership of Twitter in showing to the world how much collusion there was between Silicon Valley and political organisations. I mean, we had the White House quite literally targeting users and saying, you need to take this post down because we don't like it. It wasn't illegal. They just didn't want it up there. I mean, surely we owe Twitter a little bit of a, a nod and a thanks for revealing just how bad this collusion really was. Well, they certainly brought a lot of that to light. Um, so people have been talking about that for a long time, but to have that cold, hard evidence there that shows that that was occurring is, is important. So um, I, I do agree with that. Um, obviously, the more platforms there are, it kind of spreads that competition. Um, and then obviously, uh, people can choose their platform of choice. So we do see that there are some decentralized 
systems that are there, but they don't have mass adoption. That's the issue. So people kind of gravitate to the big systems. Um, obviously, Facebook um, pro- probably being the main one there, and uh, the the level of censorship that's occurring in that system is just problematic. So I think it is on people to learn about these other systems that exist as well and um, to support those systems. But wherever there's decentralised, uh, privacy-oriented systems as well, I think that those things should be supported and adopted. Well, as conservatives, we should really be taking an interest in the social media landscape because it's the old public forum that used to uphold these values and host these discussions. So it's crucial for any kind of democracy to have that as functioning. But look, one of the looming disasters that almost nobody is talking about is the loss of cash. Uh, Every big bank is begging the government to let them do away with cash forever. And in the meantime, they are closing branches, getting rid of ATMs and putting arbitrary limits on cash withdrawals. Now, this is your money, not the bank's money. They're saying, oh, you can only have so much of it at a time. Now, the government, including the Liberals under Scott Morrison, I must say, were also playing along and pretending that things like, oh, cash equals crime, which is ludicrous. Crime will exist in any mechanism that you have. Now, no cash means there is no escape from things like limitless transaction fees, negative interest rates, government stalking and unacceptable oversight. Should conservatives, particularly those who are interested in traditional things like the monarchy and democracy, should they be paying attention to this cash debate? And what are your thoughts on the loss of cash? Yeah, look, this is a huge area. I think it's one of the most important discussions to be having at the moment, to be honest. So what I'm seeing is there's this increased control that government is trying to have over people's lives. And they're building the machinery by which to actually enforce that level of control. So what we saw, I think, um, during COVID is that people sort of swallowed hook, line and sinker broadly, um, the general public line there, and they were willing to accept a level of control from government in our lives that I don't find acceptable. Right. So if you consider that and the I I think the average person has probably shifted a little bit on this as a result of that experience. But we did show that we are capable of being very, very controlled in in the right circumstances. So build on top of that, this control over the cash side of things, um, removing cash from the economy and having everything going through electronic transactions. That sort of leads into this. Uh, sort of centralised banking digital currency that they're talking about the introduction of. And it's not just talk, there's pretty much at the point of implementation. They've got um, the the uh, model sort of sorted there and it's at the level just before implementation. So when we get to a point where there is a centralised banking digital currency, um, it's the opposite of what broader cryptocurrencies offer. So if you look at the idea behind cryptocurrency, it's essentially a decentralised uh, system where no central government or authority controls that system. So if something went offline in one particular country and you know there was an issue within that country, the system exists independently in all the other countries. And as long as the broad um, uh, majority of people are in agreement, uh, then that basically exists as a permanent record. So if you look at that principle of having a decentralised ledger, they've essentially taken that same principle said, we want to replicate this in a way that we can control it um, and have all transactions tracked through a central uh, authority. So what we will see there is firstly visibility over all transactions that are occurring within the economy. Um, now, they would do that obviously under the banner of we need to be um, avoiding you know, terrorism and other things that everyone would say, okay, well, absolutely, you know, we don't want those things. But the flow-on effect from that and, and the, where, the, where it could be abused, I think, is um, the lack of privacy that people can have and I think are entitled to um, in their day-to-day affairs. Um, and cash offers them that. So if we phase that out, you would not be able to replicate that in that type of system. So the extension of that is if you had a situation where the government wanted to have more granular control over the economy, because uh, really the only rate uh, lever that they have at the moment is to pull is, is w- with respect to rates. So they can stimulate the economy or you know they can track the economy uh, by adjusting interest rates. Imagine now that they could print money on demand and have the mechanics by which they could say, okay, we want to stimulate this particular area of the economy and within that central banking digital currency, say, people can only spend this money on essential goods and services within five kilometres of their home. And they would have the mechanics by which to actually enforce that. 
Um, now, printing money and giving it to people to stimulate one area of the economy is one thing, but what if that then extends into telling people how to use their own money and saying, because they, they would have the ability to do this, whether they would enforce it or not, it's another story, but to say this particular amount of money is going to expire if you don't spend it within the economy within the next you know three months. Um, that type of situation. I don't like a system where they have that level of granularity over control. But what they are doing is picking winners and losers in businesses, which they should not be allowed to do. That's not how a functioning uh, economy works. It's also the idea that they say for safety purposes, we would like to see everything that an individual buys. Now, the government, there's a reason we have privacy from the government, a reason why the old systems were written with privacy as the paramount, because governments are nosy and when they have information, they always find a way to use it. They're never passive. They're always intrusive. Now, people say, oh, but how do we know what goods and services are being sold? Well, the sellers have to report what they're selling, but the government does not need to know who is buying what. That is private information and should not be available to governments because they will misuse it. And I'm sure coming into this net zero world, if the government wants to do something like push a green agenda, well, they're going to start saying, well, we're just going to add additional fees every time you buy a meat product or every time you buy something that we don't like because they'll have the ability to see what you're purchasing and either stop the purchase or, you know, tax it further. But I mean, there was one uh, guy was floating an idea of a, a service station where you open the door and you aren't able to buy certain products if you've already bought, bought some of that week. This is all linked into the digital ID, idea of social credits. I mean, is this the future that we really want as a free country? The social credits, I think, is, is the point there. So what we've seen as well is the introduction of this idea of a national digital identity. So if you tie those three pieces of the puzzle together and you look at the national digital identity, the central banking digital currency, and then this sort of granular control that people have sort of shown that they are prepared to accept um, during COVID, and you put those three pieces together, you get a pretty uh, doomsday sort of scenario. And um, I don't personally like the idea of them being able to track, you know, every single thing that you do and then sort of have that feed in through your identity into a profile about you. Now, governments change, right? So you might say, well, look, you know, I don't particularly like this government or whatever, uh, but, you know, overall, we've got a reasonable country here and, you know, I don't think that the government's really interested in our day-to-day lives. Many people may take that opinion, but even if that were the case, governments do change. And what if you had a government that wasn't so benign um, at some point in the future? That information will not go away. That is a permanent record. And the uh, sort of ultimate end of that, I guess, is what you see in China, where they very much do have that. And it's not just, you know, a credit score that uh, people have. Uh, Obviously, here we have credit scoring already. Uh, But to extend that into a social score, um, which is based on everything that you do uh, and whether or not that's approved activity, and then to sort of have that impact on your ability to participate within society, that's not a great position to be in. Oh, there's a huge difference between having a credit score that says, gee, you suck at saving, so we're not going to lend you much money, and having a social credit score which says you disagree with the government, therefore you can't partake in civilization. Those two things are worlds apart and they make a huge difference to the concept of freedom. And my worry is that Western governments don't seem to be very interested in ideas like freedom or liberty. They're they're far more interested in how can we control, how can we make uh, the public better able to give us more money in taxation, and how can we coerce people into making economic decisions that benefit our mates that we're getting kickbacks from. That's what we seem to be heading toward. And I don't like how ambivalent people are because as I said a million times, our civilization will be destroyed from laziness and convenience, not by a foreign army. Now, there are plenty of young people who'd give up their freedoms if the government promised them to pay their Netflix bill or, you know, started shouting them for their uh, Uber. Is it a sad reality of our age that the youth who have never lived through true hardship are so willing to invite the big state straight into their backyard? Yes, uh, I think that's absolutely true. I think it's an apathy where people haven't experienced hard times. I think it's also that they haven't got a deep enough understanding of history and what has actually occurred and where that ultimately leads to if you're not careful. So they're probably apathetic about it um, and they're just taking the path of convenience and least resistance. So there are conveniences that come with giving up your privacy, you know, just sort of letting big state occur. Um, And if you look at it at surface level, there can be appeal in that. 
So if you just take the little carrot that's dangled and said, uh, they say, you know, here's a bit of money or here's some particular convenience, people jump on that bandwagon. So who's responsible for that? Well, I guess ultimately the people who are making those decisions. But by extension, I think it's our system that has failed them. They haven't been taught um, sufficient history there. Um, And as an adult, I think as they get older, people do become more conservative. Um, And as they get that life experience, um, we we know that people become less radical. But certainly when they're coming out of high school, um, where they really should have had some foundation laid, they're coming out ill-equipped to make the right decisions, in my opinion. There has to be more done in that space. Well, let's have a, a chat about the social fabric of the next generation. There's been a lot of time and money spent indoctrinating Australia's youth into the cult of socialism. I mean, whichever ism you want to pick, there's a lot of isms running around, but they are being indoctrinated to one or more of them. Now, these kids have grown up and now they were, they're starting to vote. We're seeing the results coming through in these inner city areas. And soon they'll be old enough to run companies and enter politics. Now, this happened under the watch of conservative governments because in the states and federally we've had conservative liberal governments in the majority of this for at least 10 years and they've done very little to keep an eye on the education of our children even though they had the power to fix these problems. I mean, what is the Liberal Party going to do? Because at the moment it seems they've failed to safeguard Australia's future by offering a decent education to kids. I mean, I know Labor wants to control the youth, but surely the Liberals have dropped the ball here. Look, it's intentional. I don't think this is something that's happened by accident. Um, The march, as it's called, through the institutions, they've tried to take over these institutions deliberately to create this outcome. So in any democracy, you're only going to get outcomes as good as the people participating within that system. So if there's a moral or other um, deficit in the people, you're going to see that over time that's going to create major, major issues. So I still believe when you compare it to the political class, the average Australian has better judgment, good, uh, you know, uh, judgment, decency um, and, and common sense than the average person who's, and there are exceptions, there are some good people in politics, but as a, as a, as a class, as a, as a whole Um, I think that most Australians have a better sense of common sense. So what we need to make sure is that we are not neglecting um, the education system and other areas that that, that are bringing up the next generation. We need to make sure that the quality of people who are going to feed into that system are better. And perhaps there are some broader reforms that we can look at, which would lead to better people being in parliament and seeing that talent rise to the top, because that's not occurring at the moment. Oh, look, I just don't have any faith that Liberals have got enough of a spine to take on the education unions and say, look, you've got to stop preaching this crazy stuff in our classroom because our kids can't add and they can't spell and they're falling off the world stage. I mean, we're behind some third world countries now with our literacy skills. I mean, how does that happen in a generation? It seems to be extraordinary. But going back to the monarchy for a second, spirituality is a big part of the service that you talked about. I mean, if you look at uh, the late Queen Elizabeth, her faith and her her spiritual guidance is part of the reason why she was such a wonderful monarch for all those years. Now, I'm not religious, but the the lack of faith and what we what would you call it? general morals and culture among the youth has been replaced by political movements instead of spiritual movements. Now we've got things like Extinction Rebellion, for instance, that brand themselves like a religion. Is this going to change the way that Australians grow up? Because you said, oh, they'll start voting conservative when they get older. But I'm I'm not so sure that the youth are going to behave like the youth of old because they're not tied down by the same principles as former generations. I think that we are inherently religious to some extent. So where we don't have something that fills that uh, role and, and place in our lives, I think we look for that in something else. Um, so where we see these issues um, that people latch on to, I think that that is in a sort of search of filling that gap. So different people will fill that in different ways, um, some you know more positive than others, but uh, certainly those fashionable issues, I think, are quasi-religious and they, they do fill that void that people have in their lives. So yes, I think the monarchy, um, uh, the individuals within it will have different uh, levels of commitment um, within that. But um, as an institution, I think it has been built on those um, principles and values. So we've seen that 
uh, as sort of the foundation, I guess, of what we inherited at, um, at Federation and when our systems were built um, prior to that as well. But uh, it, it's, it's really, I think, um, on us to preserve that cultural um, element and, and that moral fabric uh, that we, we've enjoyed and that's led to our success. Well, it was promising to see a lot of younger Australians and even uh, younger people from the UK. When the Queen sadly died, there was this communal spirit and this nostalgia for our history. And a lot of people who are feeling lost because there's not a lot of uh, culture going on in this new radical socialist environment that kids growing up in, seeing that a lot of people were gravitating towards it because they're lacking their history. They're being told to hate everything about their ancestors. That's not a healthy way for a civilization to grow up hating themselves and everyone that came before them. Do you think there might be a little bit of a rebellion coming in where people want to feel good about their history? They want to love their country again. They're getting a bit tired of being told that it's their fault for the last you know, 60,000 years. They're the problem when they haven't done anything wrong. Is that going to grow a bit tired for the young people? Yeah, I think it does. Um, uh, there's there's a, a pendulum effect in this. So we, we've seen, I think, the pendulum swing to one extreme and we're starting to see to an extent um, that swinging back a little. So it's not something that happens instantly, but I think people are seeing that there are problems with the way that their um, sense of self has been shaped and that there's something wrong with that. So I think over time we will probably see that the next generation um, may move back in the other direction. So it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. And I don't think we should just be hands off with it, but I think there is a natural swing between the two extremes. Yes. Well, I mean, we've got another problem that I don't think has existed in geopolitics ever before in human history. I'm prepared to, to put that out there and say this is a first. We've got a Western civilization full of kids raised on TikTok who are so confused about their identity that they can't even decide what pronouns they should be using. And they queue up to have their balls and breasts cut off before they can even vote. Now, Australia has a government that instead of being deeply concerned about this uh, social change and the welfare of children, they are covering cities in rainbow and glitters and affirming this kind of ideology instead of questioning it. And it's leading to the physical butchering of our children. Now, surely yeah. this is going to have an impact on the social fabric of the country and also future generations, because I suspect that given it's more than a thousand percent increase, there's going to be a lot of regret and a lot of anger and uh, a backlash to the current political stance on this. Yeah, I, I agree. So what we see is these fashionable things tend to emerge in good times. So as you said before, people haven't experienced hardship. So they sort of relax into this decadence, I guess, that we've enjoyed. And we see this in history where civilizations do collapse uh, when they go into periods of decadence. So what we need to be very, very careful here is that we are actually teaching people history um, I'm not saying that we should be calling for tough times, um, although they may may come. I don't but, think you need um, to call the, for the that. I think we're here. heading straight toward tough times, whether we like it or not. So, yeah, look, they may well come, but um, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that's going to be a, a, a great thing. But it certainly would have the effect that people would look at what really is important, um, rather than looking at these meaningless um, things that they're, they're they're sort of chasing and that are harmful to society. So I think naturally we're going to see that pendulum swing back to some extent as as things play out. Uh, but absolutely the people who are leading um, the charge at the moment, um, we need to look at the quality of those people and we are not seeing the, the talent within Australian culture and, and the population rising to the top because the political system does not allow that to happen when you look at the way that the pre-selections occur within the major parties and the ability to hold the account the politicians accountable between elections. I just, I can't imagine trying to explain to my grandfather, and it would be the great or great-great-grandparents of the kids who are around today, the people who have gone through a world war, who've seen the depression, who went to school in bare feet and rode horses around and had to go and hunt for their food, I can't, I can't imagine explaining today's cultural problems of kids who are so depressed because someone called them a, a fairy instead of a helicopter, whatever it is they're on this week as their pronouns. The cultural divide is so great that you're right, there is a kind of boredom and decadence that has led to 
I mean, you'd almost call it a madness that society enters into this state. Is this a, a repercussion of being so far removed from the last period of true hardship that we've got no elders left who can bring society back to reality? Look, it probably it probably is. I, I think that's hitting the nail on the head. Um, so I think that when you look at history and you see civilizations that go into this period of relaxed decadence, they have collapsed. And we should not think that we are above that and beyond that. Uh, I don't think that we can take Western society as a whole and say there's this sort of system that would buck the trend of history. So if we don't address it and we don't consciously learn from what's happened in history and shift direction in the opposite way, I think we we are on a collision course. Now, whether that takes 10 years, whether that takes 50 years, whether it takes 100 years, um, I think we're on a trajectory and heading in a, a direction that's very unhealthy for our future. Well, part of the referendum was this notion of truth-telling. Now, those of us, as you say, with a working knowledge of history, immediately recognise the parallels with Mao's cultural revolution in China, in which history was retold and rewritten to suit the political narrative of the day. Now, in order to justify the erasure of the past, it was rebranded as truth. Not factual truth, but political truth. Now, there is a lot of this political truth running around in Albanese's government. And we've seen this with his floating of the misinformation and disinformation bill that has now been, you know, it was originally a Liberal Party bill, I think, and it's been taken up by Labor and moved up a few rungs into scariness. And now it's you know, almost going to be passed. Now, what do we do? We've got a, a civilization of, of uh, people, not just kids, but also adults who think that we should be able to control truth because that's how we stay safe. Their idea of freedom of speech is dangerous has permeated society for so long that it's actually now believed generally that everything they don't like is hate speech. Yeah. Well, the thing that you've got to balance is this. There are things that are subjective Right. And if you look at, for example, the idea of the voice, I, I say that because it's a recent debate. Um, there were arguments on both sides and some of them may have had merit um, on both sides. It's got to be the people who decide what the correct arguments are. But some things are just objective truth and it doesn't matter what um, your opinion is. You can have an opinion, but there's an objective truth. And what seems to have sort of shifted in recent times is this suggestion of my truth. So my truth and your truth could be very different. So if I say the sky is blue and you say that the sky is pink, well, we can't both be right because the sky is objectively whatever it's going to be, right? It doesn't matter what our opinions are. So that that's one example. But we need to say that those things that are objectively true are true. And we just need to call those out. So I think there's two elements. One is objective truth. The second one is where there are areas of grey and there should be debate to determine how to move forward as a society on a particular issue. We need to allow discussion on all points and not filter opinion. Put it all out there into the ideas market and let the uh, consensus rise to the top. Well, I mean, so I think that, both are important issues. That used to be the purpose of a newspaper. Newspapers would print as close as they could objective truth and then you let the people talk about whatever rubbish they want. I mean, this idea that you have to police the, the social media public forum for truth is as ridiculous as wandering down the pub and tapping on people's shoulders and being like, hey, Jeff, that stuff you said about, you know, whatever, that's wrong. I mean, you don't do that. You let the public talk about whatever random stuff they want and then you, you keep the media outlets, you know, closer to the truth and everything will work itself out. But we know that despite what the politicians say, they're not interested in policing truth or getting rid of conspiracy theories. No one's going to show up at your door because you started talking about aliens in Antarctica. They're interested in censorship for a very narrow brand of politics where if you say mean things about a wind turbine, you're going to get removed. If you question the efficacy and safety of vaccines, you're going to get deleted. This is the kind of uh, censorship that we're actually talking about. Do you think it's time that we do away with this misinformation and disinformation entirely? And should conservatives apologise and say, look, sorry, we got it wrong. We're now going to embrace freedom of speech and we're going to uphold this because I don't think people want to be silenced. No, they, they don't want to be censored. Um, I think it's important to attack it on, on that front and to say we will not accept this as a society and the political uh, movements that are sort of pushing for that need to hear the people. Uh, so that's one side of it. The second side, I think, is supporting technological platforms. If we're going to move into an environment where there is increased censorship and control, there are 
platforms that can facilitate genuine freedom of speech and those platforms should be used and supported. So I think that um, there will be strong movements from government to try to block access to those systems because they don't like the principles that sit behind them. And the same thing goes when it comes to uh, the use of um, uh, money as a, as a digital currency, uh, those systems that um, facilitate private transactions and so on. Uh, there are movements from governments to block access and make it very, very difficult to operate with those systems, but there are ways and means to do it. So it almost becomes a, a parallel economy, I suppose, to some extent. Yeah, well, look, there's something else that is troubling me. It was great, our referendum result. I mean, 60-40, roughly, is a wonderful result for a referendum to get rid of that idea. But there was still a roughly 40% of people who thought race politics, a racial bureaucracy, and revenge race politics in the form of treaties between races, race taxes, and native title acts, they thought that that was a good idea. That's a lot of people in a democracy to side with the idea of race politics. Now, when you talk to the younger generations and the inner city people, they don't actually subscribe to the idea of equality between races, the old, you know, overused Martin Luther King cliche. They don't subscribe to it. They go for the new Marxist idea where in order to avenge the past, we must bring in this uh, type of equity rather than equality in which we are giving people certain extra rights to make history better somehow. That is a fundamental change in how we perceive the notion of equality. Do we need to get back to basics and somehow uh, reaffirm why you can't play things like revenge race politics because that is never, ever, ever going to end well for a country? I think that people share a common objective that they want people's lives to be improved. And where they see someone who's living a life that may be below the standard that society has determined to be generally acceptable, they see that there's a, an issue. Now, I would agree with them in many cases that there is an issue, but it's how we go about addressing that that's the, the issue. So I think what you were getting at there, and, and, and I would agree with, is that we need to be providing the opportunities for people, and then it's really up to them to participate within society and to build themselves a better life. Um, that we can't just give people everything served on a silver platter um, and, and just expect that uh, their lives are going to continue in the same way as everyone else. It won't work um, and it shouldn't work that way. People's value is often and inherently derived from their activity and participation within society. So we need to build a system which gives them and affords them the opportunity and then it's up to them to take that uh, responsibility. So how you shift the thinking on that with younger people, um, I think uh, that that's going to be a, a challenge because they've been indoctrinated through years of education deliberately to try to get them to think, think in that way. So over time, I think that can be shifted, but it's really, I guess, reversing that, that march through the institutions and that's a generational thing. That's not just a, a policy that you can announce tomorrow. Well, look, that's a good topic to finish on. And let's hope that uh, the Conservative parties take a look at the referendum and decide to learn a few lessons before it's too late for the next generation. Thank you so much for joining us here today. It's been my pleasure. Thanks. And that's all we've got time for today on Marshall Live. Catch you next week.